Hi, my name is Matthew Wilson, and this is part four in a mini-series going through the different views on the millennium. I was thinking that I was going to do another video uh, to kind of conclude and bring everything together, but now that I think about it, I don't think that that's necessary. So I think this will be the last video in this series. Um, but just to recap what I've gone through already, in the first video, I, I talked about the different genres and interpretive approaches to Revelation, and I gave a quick introduction to the different views of the millennium. In the second video, I went through premillennialism. The third video, I discussed amillennialism. And now this video, video four, I'm going through postmillennialism. And I just want to briefly remind you of what the postmillennial position is. Postmillennialists, they're going to argue that Christ will return after the millennium. We must remember, though, that postmillennialists, they don't understand the thousand years to be a literal reign of Christ on the earth. But they argue that the millennium is really just the present church age where Christ is reigning uh, on the throne in heaven uh, through the guaranteed gradual success of the gospel and converting the nations. Uh, so he's not just reigning in heaven, he's reigning through believers who are living also. I, I need to mention that. But also after a certain amount of success, uh, that is growth of the kingdom of God on earth, Christ will return. Uh, and also a quick, quick reminder is that uh, post-millennialists are generally preterists or historicists in their interpretive approach to Revelation. So I've, I've heard... It, it's been said, I've heard it said, that the best argument for post-millennialism is Jonathan Edwards, who's considered to be a great theologian. He is a great theologian, really. Uh, and, and I think that this should give us pause in and of itself. We don't see many post-millennialists today. At least I, out of the three views that we've gone through, I think that this is the least popular, at least in my experience. Uh, and same with generally speaking what what i see in teachers online too in the american church at least um i've also seen uh i well i saw the other day that someone was saying that rc sproul is a post-millennialist uh, and I, i've heard teachings from that where he really sounds like one i didn't know that he was one but he's one of my favorite teachers so i think that's another strong argument for post-millennialism Another postmillennialist who is somewhat well known is Douglas Wilson, and he's really, really solid. Generally, really solid. Uh, but, but yeah, those are kind of some names that we might know that hold to this view. Um, and also, I, I was talking to my dad the other day about this view specifically, and he was saying something along the lines of once World War II hit, uh, the postmillennial view kind of dropped off in America. And if it's, if this is true, uh, it's likely because in the postmillennialist mind, he thinks that the world is going to improve because of the the gospel permeating through cultures and societies, uh, rather than worsen. So when people see things getting worse, it would make sense that the postmillennialist uh, view would kind of drop off because it's difficult to hold that in light of. Uh, a reality that's kind of saying something different. So rather than things getting better, they're getting worse. But 
that's somewhat beside the point at the same time because our view on the millennium really should be derived solely from scripture rather than reading into the bible uh what we might think we're perceiving in in the world around us uh so in this regard i really have have a deep respect for those who do hold to the view because i think i mean i think reality at least what we see around us does not does not support this view but the Bible is our sole authority, and and in that in that uh, in that regard, I think that those who hold this view it, it's commendable. So I, I want to go through a couple of the arguments for this position, uh, and I'm not necessarily going to speak about their strongest arguments in this video, but I want to give some arguments that are particular to this view. Uh, and one of them is is uh, from the nature of Christ's present reign that we see or that they understand to be today. Another is from passages that speak about the guaranteed success of the gospel and growth of the kingdom. And the last argument is not necessarily going to be an argument. It's more just going to be a presentation of how they understand Revelation 20. And that's going to overlap a bit with the amillennials position, as as you'll see. Um, so yeah, as I said before, I really want to focus on the the things that are particular to the postmillennial position, without overlapping too much with the amillennial uh, position, because there are a lot of agreements. So the first argument that I want to go through is the guaranteed success of the gospel and growth of the kingdom so post-millennialists they're going to agree with pre-millennialists that uh, many of the promises in the old testament of an age of great blessing on earth will be fulfilled uh, but in contrast the pre-millennialists post-millennialists post-millennialists they believe that these blessings are brought about not by the return of christ but by the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel in the church age. So the millennium in Revelation 20 is where these promises are fulfilled, just as the premillennialists would argue. But the way that the postmillennialist understands the millennium is different. It isn't a future literal reign of Christ on the earth, but instead this church age is what postmillennialists argue is what is described in Revelation 20, which is similar to what the amillennialists would argue. But a major difference to the amillennialist position is that in this present church age, um, a, a post-millennialist would argue that the Holy Spirit will succeed in converting the majority of the human race by the gospel. That's, that's bold. That's a bold statement, but this is what, what they believe. Uh, and some important biblical evidence for this is found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Matthew 13. So this is kind of, these passages that we're going to look at here, uh, at least like skim through here, are, are kind of their ground for, or their reason for why they, why they are going to argue that uh, the gospel is going to succeed in converting the majority of the nations. And the first one is very familiar to most of us. It's Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which is the Great Commission. Uh, Post-millennialists, they're going to argue that uh, the Great Commission is really a promise of success. So when Jesus, when he says, go and make disciples, and that he's been given authority over heaven and earth, the, the 
post-millennialist is going to argue that there is a inherent promise in that imperative. Uh, they go hand in hand, essentially. So the fact that Jesus has authority in heaven and on earth gives the post-millennialist assurance that the task that Christ has commanded to be done will be accomplished by his grace, obviously. But since Jesus, this is just to sum it up, since Jesus has authority, since he commands us to be done, uh, then there is guaranteed success that it will be done. So the reasoning, it makes sense. The next uh, ground for, for this reasoning is found in the kingdom parables, specifically in Matthew 13. And they're going to argue, at least this guy, Ralph Smith, he's a post-millennialist. And most post-millennialists, I think, would agree with this, at least to some extent. But he's going to argue, or he's going to say that in Matthew 13, quote, or Matthew 13, quote, points unmistakably to the gradual growth and progress of the gospel until the final coming of the Lord, end quote. So post-millennialists, they claim that these parables of growth show that the, quote, the characteristic of the present church age is gradual and imperfect growth of the kingdom until the end of history, end quote. And an example of that is found in the parable of the sower, and this is how they're going to handle that generally. They're going to say that the main point is that there will be people who respond to the gospel and bear fruit, and since non-Christians and false Christians do not bear fruit, then in the long, in the long run, the Christians will be numerically greater than non-Christians because they're the ones who are bearing fruit. Uh, two other examples of this for the post-millennialists are parables of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Uh, they argue that these parables uh, basically show or they, they, they show a guarantee that the kingdom of God is going to grow into a great kingdom. That this kingdom will basically sift through, flow through, leaven through the entire earth. It's, it's important to note here that this kingdom begins at the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And that's based off of Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Matthew 28, 18-20, and, and passages that are like that. I I forgot this in one of the earlier videos, so that it's an important point to, the remem to remember. Uh, the kingdom begins at the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And I, I believe that's also when the reign begins. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But I forgot that in, in one of the earlier videos. So I think that evidence gives decent support, biblical support, for a kingdom that is guaranteed widespread growth. Basically, from this point, uh, I'm, I'm trying to argue that the kingdom will grow. The kingdom is guaranteed to grow. And those parables show that, and the Great Commission shows that in some way. Uh, but premillennialists and amillennialists, you know, they're going to actually agree that the gospel is going to succeed and that the kingdom is going to grow based off the same reasons as a postmillennialist. They're going to say the same thing. But the issue, both of these views are going to have the same issue, which is that uh, the extent of this success in our present day is not as... The, the expectation is lower. So Christians today were still living in a present evil age. And this present evil age lasts until Christ comes again. 
the premillennialists and amillennialists are going to argue Jesus, he never promises that Christians who are in this age should expect anything other than oppression, persecution, and we must forsake all things for uh, Christ's sake. The Bible promises uh, that the kingdom will grow and that there will, will be gospel success, but it never promises the success and growth in our day that the post-millennialists hold to. That's how pre-millennialists and millennials are going to respond. So they're, they're basically going to say that the picture that the Bible paints is not necessarily one of uh, increasing success and no hostility. Uh, it's going to be one of some success, guaranteed success for sure, but with increasing hostility up until Christ's return. So, second argument, that, that's the first argument. Second one is the nature of Christ's present reign from 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26. Uh, so, in this section, uh, we're trying to understand what the nature of Christ's present reign is. Not if he's reigning, it's the nature of it. What is it like? Uh, Greg Strawbridge, he argues from 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, where Paul, he, he's alluding to Psalm 110, that, quote, Christ is reigning in the exact sense of these verses during the in, inter-advental period. That's like, end quote, that's like our, our period today, in between uh, Christ's ascension and second coming. Uh, let's read the passage real quick. Um, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. End quote. So Strawbridge, he's going to contend that uh, since the time of Christ delivering over so since the time of christ delivering over the kingdom is happening at the same time as the end and you see that in verse 24 the end will come when he hands over so he's handing over the kingdom at the same time as the end uh his argument is basically going to be that the, the kingdom is already a reality before the end so in other words if christ is handing over the kingdom at the end then the kingdom must already be a reality before the end. So he also says that by the time the end comes, Christ has already abolished all rule, authority, and power. And we see that in verse, uh, that's kind of in 24 and 25. He must reign, that's 25, he must reign until he's put his enemies under his feet. 24, he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So the end does not come until all rule, authority, and power have already been abolished. So that's significant because it indicates that the handing over of the kingdom follows Christ's reign and the subjection of his enemies. So the handing over of the kingdom follows Christ's reign and the subjection of his enemies. So essentially what he's saying is that Christ is reigning now in a way in which he's subjecting his enemies. But the question, it becomes, when does this reign of Christ begin or take place? And Strawbridge, he's going to suggest that it takes place when 
death is swallowed up in victory, which is at the resurrection. That is Christ's resurrection. Uh, and this was accomplished when Christ, uh, uh, yeah, this is what accomplished when Christ, he abolished death at his resurrection and will completely vanquish death at the resurrection. That is uh, the resurrection at the end. The implication of this is that Christ's millennial reign in terms of 1 Corinthians 15 occurs between his resurrection and the resurrection when the abolition of death, the last enemy, occurs, which is at the end. Alright, so this is significant for the millennium debate because it suggests that in this period, Christ is ruling in a manner, That's this is the nature of his reign, the nature of his reign is that he's reigning in a way that abolishes all rule, authority, and power. And that's this is progressive, right? It's happening over time. And when these are completely subdued, the end comes, right? So that, that fits perfectly within the post-millennial understanding. But premillennialists and amillennialists, uh, they're going to disagree with this. At least amillennialists, they're going to agree that Christ is reigning presently, but they don't believe that the passage that we just looked at provides support for post-millennialism, as in that gradual, uh, that gradual uh, destroying of, of the enemies, subjecting the enemies. Uh, Christ will reign until the end, but there's nothing that indicates, and this is, this is key, like the gradual progressive spread of the kingdom or of kingdom conditions until they reach a time when those will prevail to characterize the world. And premillennialists, they're, they're going to disagree that Christ is reigning in this manner in the present day. Premillennialists would agree that Christ is reigning. They would definitely agree. But it's the nature of the reign, right? That's why the, the nature of the reign for the postmillennialist understanding is important. But uh, the nature of the reign is not in the sense, at least Christ's present reign, is not in the sense of 1 Corinthians 15. I'm pretty sure they would generally see that uh, as being the nature of Christ's reign in the millennium kingdom. That's how they'd interpret that passage. So the last, uh, the last argument, this, like I said, this really isn't an argument, um, is from the postmillennialist understanding of Revelation 20. And I just wanted to include this because I think it's really helpful to see. Uh, and I didn't want to leave Revelation 20 out of, of the postmillennialist presentation is really what it comes down to, too. Uh, so the post-millennialist interpretation of Revelation 20, it fits in really well with the arguments that are previously prevented. And this just kind of shows how how the frameworks, it's, it's coherent. And, and I, I like that. I like that about it, obviously. Who wouldn't like that? But even if there might be stronger arguments for, uh, for the post-millennialist position, like I said, I do want to present this specifically because this is the passage that the debate really revolves around. So according to uh, Kenneth Gentry, he's a post-millennialist, uh, he understands the thousand years to be a symbolic value because it's within a vision and it perfect, it's a perfectly rounded number. And the first event in the vision is clearly 
uh, it's clearly symbolic. So Gentry, he says that it serves, quote, as John's symbolic portrayal of the long-lasting glory of the kingdom Christ established at his first coming, end quote. So the angel that binds Satan, right, the binding of Satan, the one who does that is considered to be Jesus, and that is accomplished, quote, judicially in the first century, uh, the binding Okay, yeah, so it, it happens judicially in the first century, and I believe that they're going to argue that that's at Christ's resurrection and ascension uh, specifically. And this is key for the postmillennialist understanding is that this binding, it increasingly constricts Satan throughout the Christian era, which is the millennium, the thousand years, but obviously not thousand years. But it's an increasing constriction. And, and you're going to see the differences between them, amillennialists and premillennialists, specifically on that point. Um, it's important to note that this binding is not complete, but that it simply restrains the power of Satan to deceive the nations, which I think is understood in different ways between postmillennialists themselves. Uh, but in any case, it's progressive. And it restrains the power of Satan to deceive the nations. And it's probably primarily in the sense of uh, Satan cannot stop the spread of the gospel. Something along those lines. Uh, but before Christ's first coming, everything outside of Israel was under the dominion of Satan. But with Christ's coming, Satan has begun, right? It's begun progressively, continues, but it's begun to lose his uh, dominion over the Gentiles. And during this binding of Satan, Christ rules with both believers, right? So it's not just Christ ruling in heaven. It's believers ruling with Christ, both those who have died and those who are alive. And so building off of this, the first resurrection, remember the two resurrections, we talked about this in the premillennialist and I believe the amillennialist videos. Um, the first resurrection is spiritual, just like the amillennialist would say. Um, and this first resurrection, it secures the participation of the saints uh, in the rule of Christ, who are, uh, they're essentially spiritually enthroned. They're reigning in a spiritual way with Christ. So believers who are ruling with Christ today, um, or believers are ruling with Christ today, and Christ is reigning through them. And this understanding of Revelation 20 is vital for the postmillennial view uh, because it gives strong reasoning as to why there will be vast, massive kingdom growth in history until the end. This is only possible because Christ has bound Satan and he continually constricts him through the present millennial age as the kingdom of God grows. So Christians are reigning along with Christ today and that gives great confidence to the post-millennialist believer uh, in the conquering of the nations or the, the guaranteed success of gospel growth, kingdom growth. Christ will return once this success reaches a cer certain height or uh, level, I guess. that's It's unknown and it's disagreed upon, but at the very least, it's unknown. So amillennialists, they're going to agree for the most part with this presentation but the main thing that they're going to disagree with is the progressive constricting of satan during the present church age 
So instead, they're going to understand it as a one-time act, and it produces a result of uh, restricting Satan's ability to deceive the nations during the church age. And I think they're going to argue that it's honestly, honestly, they. I think they disagree in many ways. I, I'd have to look back at that, so I'm, I'm not going to say anything about that right now. I, I think I have said something about it in the other videos. Anyways, premillennialists, uh, they have many disagreements with the uh, with the interpretation, obviously, like the entire thing. So the thousand years, some premillennialists, uh, I think historic premillennialists specifically, would ag agree uh, in many cases that the thousand years could be symbolic, or it is symbolic. Um, but that's not necessarily the issue here. Uh, the major issue that a premillennialist will have is that it appears that the approach to Revelation 20 um, kind of seems to to try to fit it, the postmillennialist the the way that premillennialists would generally I guess understand this to reword it is that they're going to say that uh, a postmillennialist is trying to fit Revelation 20 within a a, a preconceived framework uh, rather than reworking their system uh, to reworking their system in light of what Revelation 20 is saying. Uh, so the I, I've explained this in the past, so I'm, I'm not going to say any more about that. You can look at the other videos and or go back at the, go back to them if you'd like to. So that's the postmillennialist perspective. Honestly, I think they have some good and strong arguments from Scripture. Like I said, I, I respect the position because I don't think that reality is really. Uh, on their side necessarily I mean maybe you can look at the big picture and say the gospel is spreading throughout the world which it is but uh, the extent of that success is is really where I think a lot of the rub is specifically between the amillennialist and postmillennialist but anyways I, I did say that I was thinking about doing a fifth video but I don't think I'm going to do that I'll just kind of wrap it up here uh, I just kind of want to say the Millennium Debate, it's its much bigger than just one passage, and I hope I showed that in some way, specifically by not arguing from Revelation for a lot of the a lot of the views. I think a lot of the strong arguments come from outside of Revelation. Um, the, the process, well, one of the reasons why this is such a difficult topic is that, because like you're not only dealing with issues of interpretation that are dealing with like one passage, but you're talking about like the relationship between many passages and they're passages that aren't necessarily super easy to to understand and interpret. So you're putting you're not only interpreting one passage that's a difficult, but you're interpreting many passages that are difficult and then trying to put them together. So it just leaves a lot of room for disagreement at the very least and dis differences. Right. Um, but I think a reason why holding a view is important for the church is because and this is so simple but it's just because this is what the church looks forward to and expects so for example if i'm a post-millennialist i have a much greater expectation uh, in seeing the nations converted uh, and seeing positive changes in cultures and societies so i expect you know the the Say I, I live in a uh, 
in a city, for example, like this is common, you want to see the kingdom grow uh, in that particular city. And as that happens, uh, you expect, not only do you expect the kingdom to grow, but you expect the city to, to change. While I, I think amillennialists and premillennialists are much more pessimistic about that. They're going to say, yeah, the kingdom will grow, but there's not going to be... M- there isn't necessarily guaranteed massive growth and the culture of the city might not change in fact it it probably won't but that doesn't mean that there won't be christians there it just means that not everyone's going to be one you know it's something something along those lines at the very least all i'm saying is that there's a very different expectation and that that does matter uh, it's very it's a very different expectation to think that you're going to face persecution until until Christ returns, rather than persecution is going to lessen up until a point of Christ's return. They're just different realities, really. Amillennialists and premillennialists a little bit more, cl- uh, a little bit closer on that, but uh, postmillennialists are kind of there's more rub or more difference there. I think another. Uh, reason that's probably a bit more significant than the prior one is that where you land it kind of reveals a lot about how you approach a lot of texts in the bible and, and interpret a lot of different parts of the bible uh, and how one uh, approaches and interprets different parts of the bible isn't really it's not a small thing uh, it's probably wise so because of this i do think it's wise in most cases to be a member of a church uh, that holds the same view, because the view—not not that it's not the end of the world—but the view that your church holds to is is going to come out in in the preaching and the small groups and the general teaching. Uh, and this is stuff that might sound foreign to a non-millennialist or post-millennialist if they're at a pre-millennialist church. So I, I think it matters in that sense. But on the other hand, uh, it's important for churches to know why and how I think others, even within their church, come to different conclusions. And then weigh the importance of those particular interpretive decisions based on the texts that are being handled. I, I think there are certain texts that are just straight up harder than others to interpret. Uh, and and more grace uh, is probably required in those cases, but at the same time, like I'm, I'm just thinking through examples. It's like the rubs are so so strong, the divides are so they're not massive, but they're clear divides. It's just it's it's hard to have true true unity uh, when you're disagreeing on so many different passages. So in the end, I, I really do think each view has its strengths and weaknesses. Every view has real hardships, every single one. Um, each one it has holes that needs to be filled. Uh, and personally, I do hold to the pre-millennialist position, but I mean, I still have a lot more to learn. I've, I have a lot of questions about hermeneutics, prophecy fulfillment, and I, I, there's still like some holes that I need to be filled but at this time, I mean, I lean so much more heavily towards that view compared to the other ones, and I and that probably came out in these in these videos. Um, but I think I, I really think my main issue with uh, 
with the amillennial and postmillennial views is that they come to re- I this is I mean this is just me speaking this is not uh, this is not necessarily truth I, this is just my my perception of it I really think amillennialists and postmillennialists they come to Revelation twenty and and they have this preconceived framework which isn't necessarily a wrong thing that they've built from reading the old and new testament and then they come to revelation 20 and they're like what is this how does this fit and they say it doesn't fit and if it doesn't fit then it can't mean what it says it or seems to be saying therefore we have to uh, i'm not saying they make it say something it doesn't say but they have to work a lot harder to fit it in with the framework that I think a premillennialist does just like uh, a plain reading of the text with with respecting the the symbolic nature of, of revelation even with that uh, I, I that's that's basically my main issue is that um, I don't think that they rightly submit to what revelation 20 is is teaching uh, while the premillennialists, I think they they allow Revelation 20 to speak for itself, and I'm not saying that the other views don't do that, uh, but I don't think they're doing it as well or as as faithfully, as submissively, almost. Um, in any case, like like if Revelation 20 wasn't in the Bible, I I could definitely be convinced of the amillennial and postmillennial perspective. That's kind of where I'm at. Uh, and, and a lot of people who hold to premillennialism will, will say something along those lines that uh, if it wasn't for Re- Revelation 20, then I wouldn't be premillennialist. But I, I think the Bible definitely leaves room open for a premillennial interpretation. But uh, I see very strong arguments for the other sides. I just think uh, Revelation... Revelation 20 really gives the edge to the premillennialist position. Uh, I'm not satisfied uh, with the approaches that the other positions I think take to get around it. Uh, and that's that's kind of it. Um, so that's kind of how I, I, I want to end this. I want to thank you if you've listened through all of these uh, all these videos. I, I appreciate it. I hope that it was helpful. Um, I don't know everything about this topic but i've done i've done a good amount of reading i mean not not a ton but i've done a good amount of reading and i i hope that this was at least helpful for giving an introduction to the millennium and if you want more resources i obviously uh, i have i have a ton um that i can recommend um but yeah thank you and um this is going to be the last video i'm not going to do another one on the millennium but thanks again